0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the DevMare Debugged podcast, where experts from top companies all over the world share their insights on everything developer marketing. Today, we're joined by Chris Riley, senior manager of developer relations at HubSpot. Um, in his own words, Chris is a bad coder turned technology advocate with a passion for modern development and how code is changing the world. And hi, Chris. Thanks for joining Hello. me today. Oh, thank you. It's great to have you. Um, So today we're talking about the idea that when engaging with developers, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. But before we get into that, uh, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go back, way back, way back. Absolutely.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) Actually, I like to tell the story not... Of my history, not because it's so much about me, it's kind of also a story of the history of advocacy and DevRel. Because I think there's a lot of folks getting into DevRel today that don't fully understand the genesis, and that's important. And that's where I see a lot of misconceptions. And um, so I've been in advocacy, tech evangelism um, officially for 15 years. But when I started my technical career, I started as a software developer and I moved my way into sales engineering for a while, product management for a while, marketing for a while, but it was always at a company that was selling to developers. And what organizations realized is that the traditional approaches in each of those categories wasn't going to cut it. And so it it kind of took what who is called the original tech evangelist, Guy Kawasaki, to publish content around tech evangelism. And then from what I can tell, it was a combination of Microsoft and, um, and Sequoia, believe it or not, right. who pushed their portfolio companies to build out this new tech evangelist role. And so it went crazy in the, the startup world, And I was a part of that. I was a part of a Sequoia company. I was brought in as one of the first tech evangelists, one of the early tech evangelists out there in the industry. And that's where I've been ever since. Now, the title tech evangelism has has evolved. So I went through several SaaS companies. uh, Well, they're they're all SaaS companies, several startups. And um, uh, for a stint there, I actually was a co-founder of a developer marketing agency. Um, a fairly long stint, who was exposed to uh, about 150, 120 around their DevRel practices. And that's really where I got my playbook. That's really where I understood what works, what doesn't work. Around that same time, this term DevRel came out. And as far as I can tell, DevRel was just building on the idea of tech evangelism Taking it one step further into other disciplines, documentation, um, events, community, et cetera. And is really a strategy, not a specific role. And that's where I see the biggest misconception today. So when I left the agency, I created a playbook, essentially. Um, and I've been running off that playbook for for several years now, and it's it's been tremendously successful and when I say playbook it just doesn't mean like a checklist guide. it's a framework. yeah uh, and and I love it. I love being a part of the growth of the industry. I'm authoring a book on it currently. Um, I'm part of uh or I'm signed up to be a part of a few of your own courses. so um, it's it's really exciting to to participate in this evolution and and hopefully in small part this this helps people understand where it all came from.
0: Yeah, that's, as you said, really way back, isn't it? Uh, it's a completely new, well, kind of a new industry in a way still, I feel like it's just still growing. There's not a lot of people have heard about it or, um, but it's good to see, as you say, because obviously there's so many SaaS companies, so many um, you know developers and they are increasingly, you know, gaining more influence. So it's just good to see that we are actually kind of catering um, to this audience. And so you also say that you started out as a coder. So how did you move away from that and just focus on that other side?
1: Yeah, so I wasn't a very good developer. Um, I was I was more of a hacker, uh, although when wow. <laughs> I was part of uh, building uh, an OCR engine, it was it was a category of technology that I was extremely passionate about, which was recognition technology, and so um, I I dove into that and I, I I built some really cool things. Where I struggled was kind of all the logistics around building applications versus mm. the code itself. What was interesting is I really wanted to write blogs. I really wanted to speak. I had this general uh, this. Um, kind of aptitude to communicate and engage with developer audiences beyond just like being heads down and writing the code. Hmm. The first iteration of that was sales. Uh, Folks noticed that and were like, you know, when we get Chris on the phone, things go really well. So I was put in a sales role and I enjoyed it. I didn't like the structure, the comp structure of sales, but I really enjoyed the engagement with the developers and being able to talk about tech but not being the responsible one for the tech. I I, I get to communicate it, but not be on the hook to make sure like you get it done and it's bug free. So that was that was really kind of where the jump happened. And again, the role didn't exist at that time. So I poked around Mm -hmm. because I knew that this was what I was interested in. So I went into product management had Some elements of it went into product marketing, had some elements of it, and then eventually arrived at you know where we are today.
0: Yeah, so very long journey, but fulfilling. And yeah, um, another thing I would also like to talk about, of course, is your um passion for you know neurodiversity uh, advocacy as well. Um, so would you like to talk a little bit more about that and um, basically what you're doing to remove this stigma that still exists?
1: Yeah. And I think that that's that's the biggest thing. Um, It's a very uncomfortable topic for for folks, neurodiversity. And of course, when I say the word neurodiversity, that's a wide range of Mm -hmm. of things. And you don't have to be diagnosed like it's it's you can self-identify as neurodiverse. That's fine. You're not breaking any rules if you do that. The reason we use the term is to distinguish behaviors that are different than, you know, what society has told us is acceptable or or not acceptable. Um, I've been in tech my whole life. So this could be kind of uh, uh, an availability bias, but I seem to notice that There is a more abundant amount of neurodiversity, autism, ADHD, et cetera within the tech field than there is in other spaces. And I'm really passionate about folks being allowed to be themselves, just being human, not just because that's the right it's because also it promotes efficiency and and work gets done faster and it's more effective if you just are able to get the things that is always lingering in people's back of the mind out on the table. Um, My journey in neurodiversity started when I was 17 and I continue on to almost 42 now, 41 and a half. Uh, And (laughs) it it's it's been important to me so for example my current diagnosis is uh, ADHD dyslexia and potentially um uh high functioning autism and so i i know one of the things that i was kind of born with and and is this ability to be vulnerable without being too afraid of it and i kind of feel right or a responsibility to leverage that to give voice to folks that don't yet feel comfortable being vulnerable and are forced to mask their entire careers because they don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good for the company. Um, And I rather think about it as how do we maximize the power of our neurodiverse folks? Because there's they have superpowers that they can do amazing things that that every organization can can leverage and grow on. The other thing is, like, I've seen a lot of really disturbing neurodiversity um, content out there. Uh, there's organizations who produce kind of like presentations on how you should communicate, how you should respond, how you should behave, et cetera. I think that's completely missing the point mm. the, primary point is awareness and allowing the conversation to happen you shouldn't pander to somebody and i i assume that a lot of these content is was created by folks that would um, consider themselves neurotypical but i don't like that i think it's i think it's dangerous i think it's offensive in a lot of cases and so what i'm trying to do is is just make the conversation okay
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well, because people are so different. If you have a set of rules, oh, this is how you should behave if you're dealing with a person with, you know, X and Y, like, it might not work, you know, people are so different. So what's the point of having something like that? And yeah, so I think it's more important, as you say, to just, I guess, normalize it and understand that it's not, it's nothing bad, it's just, you should just accept it. And yeah. Um, and I,
1: I would I would never want it different in my life mm. and, and I don't call it a disorder. I say living with very intentionally living with ADHD, because there's a lot of challenging aspects of ADHD, especially in personal relationships. But it's also I wouldn't have my job. <laughs> right. I wouldn't have gravitated towards advocacy. Like all of mm. these things are, are the direct result of being, you know, living with this. And so it's also my, my benefit as well.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And as you were saying before, you said like you notice a lot of people in tech kind of identify as well as neurodiverse. So if it think thing that um, it's maybe an industry that's more accepting or uh, people feel more, you know, at ease to just come out and say it or, yeah, less stigma, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I, I I have a I have a theory I think that um the tech industry offers employees difficult problems, difficult challenges, hard things to grapple with. Mm. Um and I think neurodiverse folks gravitate towards those sorts of challenges.
0: I don't know. Yeah, that's that's also true. Yeah. Um and yeah, so to sort of, you know, go back to advocacy, um we are going to be talking about, you know, it kind of ties into that as well, I suppose, of, you know, one size doesn't fit all because everyone's so different and and stuff. But um, would you say there are any traits or characteristics that perhaps the developer audience or the developer, you know, section of the market, so to speak, uh, tends to share?
1: Yeah, for sure they do. I think the journey, uh, and when I say journey, um, how this audience gets information, how they consume information and then what they do with it. And the journey kind of splits up into three general categories from what I can tell and and what I use. Um, The first is I need an answer to a specific question. That's journey number one. Journey number two is, I heard there was something new and cool and I wanna know about it. Journey number three is, I think I can use this tool to do what I want to do, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. So I think you have those three journeys. Within each of those journeys, I think the behavior of the developer audience is pretty consistent. So, for example, the pure question and answer is going to be documentation, usually starting with a, a Google search. Uh, the um, What was the second one? Oh, the something new that's going to be focused on YouTube videos and blog posts and then the um, art of the possible is going to be scanning a wide range of technical resources, including blog. um, um, Documentation is probably the only use case where a developer might go directly to the site versus going to Google So why does that matter? Um, it allows you to create a really good framework and optimize around those Journeys but for the I guess more um, traditional marketer I that's not meant to be offensive but like somebody who comes from a more traditional marketing background, it also means there's a lot of tools that you're used to using that don't matter at all <laughs> and yes. things like, ads and um you know email drip campaign like emails are useful but they're not useful necessarily for enticing somebody to take action the other thing is this it's very problem solution focused developers tend to be very problem solution focused unless they're tinkering so you have to know when they're doing one of those two things. Because if they're tinkering, that's when it's more fun. That's when more traditional marketing efforts work. But if it's problem solution and you get in their way and you impede expectations of what they hope to get when they click the button, that can backfire in, in very public ways sometimes. And so it's, it's important to know that. Um, and I haven't really seen that change over the years, even, even when I was building SDKs, it was the same way, just a little bit harder to get to the information.
0: All right. And you said it's important to know, that, but how would you then, uh, kind of, you know, find out which, well, which journey, um, the developer is, or if, whether they're tinkering or if they're, you know, looking to buy or Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I th- I think we, we want to be able to kind of identify those moments doesn't mean we should or have to. Um, mm. there, there is a bit of, if you do the right thing here, it will work out for you. But that takes a little bit of faith. I understand that. If you focus your attention on reducing friction, filling gaps, and making sure that each one of those journeys is seamless as possible, you're doing the right thing. I know it's uncomfortable to say, well, you know, we got to go out and find them. And I can tell you where that comes from. And I'll explain it soon. It comes from metrics. And it comes from Mm. a bad explanation inside of the business how this is supposed to work but you maybe you don't uh if you do the right thing and you have a good product they will come Mm. and they will demonstrate the behavior that you want them to demonstrate choosing which one you want to optimize because you can't choose all at once that is is kind of a different business decision but this motivation of like we got to find them got to it may not be the right way, um, just as we see in product-led growth. Like it's the same thing when engaging with developer audiences. Like it's a pull versus a push.
0: So I guess that also ties into the idea that developers are sort of like a fragmented audience. Uh, you were saying, you know, we don't have to go after them because a lot of people say that. Oh, how do I find them? Where do I target them? What do I do? And so, dangerous how would you...
1: path.
0: Yes. Dangerous <laughs> path. So what would you recommend instead of, instead of that?
1: It's funny because I don't think I've worked at any, any company where I didn't have the marketing team go to me and like, what are the blog posts they read? You know, what gets their attention? Like all this stuff. There's not many places out there. I mean, there's like the foundational places There's stack overflow. There's, um, Dev2 is like, it's a popular blog, but it's not generally tied to the workflow or the lifecycle of a developer. You need to be a part mm. of the workflow and the lifecycle. So I'd say two things that that these are harsh, hard truths. First, your product is not the only product that developers working with. That's really important to know because you need to think of your persona as somebody who is dealing with a lot of things all at once and really complex challenges, and it's not your product. That's why getting things pushed in their face can be extremely frustrating. To to answer the question, what do you do? That's a hard one. Um, part of it, I think, comes to your org structure. Part of it, it comes to what type of business are you? Are you tech for tech, meaning are you selling technologies to techies? Or are you tech for the purpose of expanding and accelerating your customers' adoption of your product? So, for example, HubSpot, where I work, um, our API is used to expand the capabilities specific for the specific use cases of a company it takes a developer to customize to do that but the developer is not the direct customer Mm -hmm. in this case whereas splunk another place i work the developer is the direct customer so your behavior is going to change in those two two scenarios when i say org structure i i i mean that um it's important to know like developer relations where does it lie within your organization how do they partner with marketing if marketing isn't maybe a part of developer relations because maybe it shouldn't be a part of it and the marketing org are they tethered to leads is it traditional marketing metrics or are they tethered to a more appropriate metric like share of conversation which is different than share of voice Mm. share of conversation um or adoption of the API or interactions on the newsletter. Newsletters are very powerful. So that's a hard question to answer because in the vast majority of organizations, probably the first thing I would do is switch up how things were organized.
0: Hmm.
1: However, um, things like newsletters are really good. Driving signups to newsletters are really good. As long as that newsletter meets the expectation of what developers want making sure that your dev portal is seamless um i'm going to use the word findability here Hmm. that is not seo that's one of the i think the biggest things to misconception uh, assumption is most organizations if you look at your developer portal and your documentation site it probably is the number one source for inbound organic traffic you want to make sure that if a developer asks Google a question, they get the right answer, which is content on your site. So what you can do as a marketer is try to make sure like there isn't another site out there that is doing a better job than you are of having technical content, Um, focusing on appropriate and useful blogs, uh, making sure you have taxonomies in your portal that are intuitive in align to those journeys that I mentioned. All of this is uh, super critical. And again, it's not SEO. Yes, keywords are important, but that's not what you're optimizing for. That will actually lead you down a bad path. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think it does. And again, that's where being more of a DevRel would come into play, isn't it? If you're not focusing so much on the technical side, no SEO and all that, then you kind of need to understand the developer and you are creating products um, in a way that keeps in mind that technical audience. So a bit more, oh, what are they looking for? How can I actually add value and, um, you know, solve their problems? So yes. I would suppose I suppose that's more of the responsibility of Devrel, you would say, or
1: yeah, and and I think the relationship with marketing is super important. How how I see developer marketing is is it is more akin to a product marketing role. Sometimes Devrel is a part of it, sometimes it's not, but they're always. I've never been in an organization where the developer marketing component wasn't my primary stakeholder them in community and so that relationship is absolutely critical and it has to go both ways what you rely on marketing to do is to give the high level messaging that ties the business value of the product to why development for that product is needed or why developers should care it shouldn't be super fluffy but why is that important why all product marketing is important. You want consistency across your message. Otherwise it just gets confusing. Yeah, then you rely on developer marketing to be your conduit for your distribution of content, getting it out there, getting in front of the right people, um, ensuring consistency because it would be very hard for advocates to worry about the consistency of content as it goes out. One of the things that I've seen a lot of organizations do, and I know this is rewinding a little bit, but it's a huge classic mistake, hmm. which is that you should not try to out-tech the techie.
0: Yeah. Like
1: they, don't need to, they don't need to learn from you new technical concepts, really. Hmm. And especially if you're a marketer, don't try to out-tech a developer. It's, it's just not worth your time. You want to make sure that they get to the information you want them to get to mm. as quickly as possible. You're a steward.
0: Mm. So taking that, considering that, would you say it's important for a marketer to have that technical knowledge? Or it, that's not perhaps as important as some people may think it is?
1: Um, I think it's really important and and anytime i've been a part of hiring panels for the marketing side it's it's a chief thing that i've looked for and i'm on the panel for that very reason to vet the technical technical competencies do you need to have had a history as a developer like i would require an advocacy no not necessarily um for sure not But you need to have a strong understanding beyond a using the buzzword perspective of how these technologies come together, why they're used, what they're used for. That can seem intimidating, but it really isn't. Like there isn't a lot of technology out there that is that you can't reduce down to some simple analogy. (laughs) Like everything like t- take docker for example or containers or kubernetes like mm. talk about containers in containers essentially like and it's easy to move containers and it's easy to copy containers like it's not that hard to um synthesize this stuff but if you're not willing to invest the effort in understanding why it is important because it, yes it can, uh, something very subtle and nuanced in an email can trigger a developer. I know it's mm-hmm. done it to me plenty of times. Um, I've had previous employers after I've left where I was part of vetting emails and I was no longer there. And I saw an email and I just, I hated it. <laughs> and I went back to the company, I'm like, You can't do this. You can't talk like this to a developer. It's pandering. It's like, it's again, it was came in this from this area of like they're trying to teach tech to the people who do it all day. I don't think so.
0: Yeah, it, no, it it does make it does make sense because I suppose, um, okay, you're a marketer, but if you don't have that knowledge, or at least as you were saying, you don't have to have, you know, the specific knowledge that a developer would have. But if you don't at least know, let's call it the basics, I suppose, um, how can you talk to a developer without maybe them feeling that, I you know, you just don't know what you're talking about. And I, I don't know if I can trust you and your opinion yeah. of your own products, perhaps.
1: And it's also so you can identify at what point you need to bring in DevRel and what point you need to have advocacy look at what you're mm. doing um, and what point you don't, like it gives you a better testing um, ability for yourself to know like, okay, like I better not mess this up because these are one of these things, if I get it wrong, mm. like, it could go wrong. Like sending a tweet that is you know overgeneralized, for example
0: yeah and that's a really good point so um of course it kind of depends on each case i, I know but um so where, when would you bring in that devrel what would you say you know overall would be let's just say it like your main indicator that yes they're ready for this now
1: you mean as an organization starting with yes. with devrel Mm. Yes. I could probably spend like two hours just on that topic alone. <laughs> That's
0: when, good. When to start?
1: When you start. Um, the good news and the bad news is most organizations know they want the role, but
0: mm. they don't
1: know why. Like they know it's important, but they haven't established why and having that why matters a lot because I'll tell you the current world of developer relations professionals in some ways have been their own worst enemy like you were saying before like it's a role that's kind of been around for a long time but it still feels new well it feels new because there hasn't been a lot of strategy and devrel folks are generally not very good at communicating to the business <laughs> and so By doing that, they shoot themselves in the foot and they allow the business to control their destiny versus the way it should be. They are the professional. They should be controlling the destiny. And so I'd say that most companies kind of know like if you if you have a public API and public API docs, you probably need a dev rel practice Um, unless your community is is so small that your sales engineers essentially end up being your devrel. You probably need a devrel practice. If you are selling to developers, then you already know this. Like I don't need to tell you you need devrel, you need devrel. Um there there's no question. Like if developers are in the decision-making tree for your product, you need devrel. Now, how you assimilate that is interesting. Do you start with advocacy? Do you start with community? Do you start with developer marketing only? I think that has a lot to do with the business. I'd say advocacy is probably the best place to start because the typical developer advocate can can influence and direct all of those components. Like they touch all of those versus community, you know, may not be as involved in um. Marketing and documentation teams, which Mm -hmm. I feel like should be a part of DevRel, may not be as involved in marketing. Then once you kind of address that and say it's advocacy, the next thing you need to know is like, what is your primary goal right now? If you're a startup, it's usually I want to make a lot of noise. Then maybe you don't build out a whole function and you just hire one advocate who's very loud, but I will tell you that won't last long. That lasts about one year or two years. Hmm. You have to start thinking about a framework and a strategy, and I think that that's where the devrel industry has fallen short um, in a really big way.
0: Okay, so not sort of long term, a long term strategy that can be maintained through you know five years, ten years, then
1: yeah, kind of, you know, yeah, and I, I mean yeah, to go back to like my point, like if you're a startup and your primary goal right now is to be loud. The loudest developer advocate is probably the worst for your organization long term, and I I know that that is an aggressive statement. Mm. I was in that category for quite a while when I was still practicing as a developer advocate, but um, I've seen organizations brands live and live and wither based on a single developer advocate because they're not going to be at your company forever. When I hire developer advocates, I don't hire based on followers and popularity and all of that stuff because I can teach all of that. There is basically a formula for doing that. It's not rocket science. What I can't teach is the inspiration about creating good content the empathy for developers understanding those developer journeys that i mentioned i can't teach that like you have to be inspired in in wanting to do that wanting to get in front of people in a public way but i don't need popularity because that is really hard to scale you can't keep on hiring you know the uh, lead movie star, whatever, uh, A-list movie star, you know, every yeah. two years. You can't do that. Huh.
0: Yeah, it's almost like influencer marketing, isn't it? in you know, a bit, if if you do it like that, I suppose. And,
1: and, and you, yeah. yeah, you're right. It tends to be treated that way and it and it has a very short shelf life.
0: No, I haven't thought about it like that, but it does make a lot of sense when you kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so in terms of, you know, that content, that DevRel content that um, uh, you create and you um, engage with developers with, um, how can you make sure that it's tailored to them and not a one size fits all, you know, like, you know, because, you know, one thing might not work for everyone, so...
1: I'm going to use this opportunity to, to give a very passive, uh, plug for what should be future training that you all are coming out with. Um, cause I, <laughs> I think <laughs> that, that, um, first, let me say, give you some confidence. The, this is a place where the formula has been done. It's been done successfully. Um, I being a bit braggy, will say that I feel like um, when I was in the developer marketing agency, I was a part of kind of establishing what is sort of like the de facto standard of curating, authoring, reviewing and publishing developer related content. Um, Mm. And you've seen it emulated over and over again now. So there is a formula there. It has been done, et cetera. Now, curation is sometimes underestimated how important it is and how long it takes and how much effort needs to be put into it. And investing in a really strong curation process that is informed by the business, informed by your target personas, because I know we use the term developer, but there's a lot of different types of developers out there. Yeah. um informed by which journey you want to optimize you should be able to answer and there's like a list of questions you should be able to answer for every single topic you think you're going to create content around and the type of topic a type of content is it a tutorial is it a blog post is it thought leadership is it a white paper is it an ebook Is it a landing page, a technical article, like all of these things? There is a list of questions you should be able to answer that tell you whether a topic is appropriate and a type of content is appropriate or not. Um, But I can't share that whole list right now because it would take me forever. And again, I think there's training that's going to come out that is going to represent this very well. But I would say... At a high level, if you're focused on solving problems and answering questions and being a steward, you're doing the right thing. Again, there's like, yeah, but how do I convince them to do this next thing? Well, developers can smell you trying to convince them to do anything from a mile away. Sometimes they're okay with it. Sometimes they're not okay with it. And so investing effort in like saying, you know, I want to I want to convince them. That's that's the wrong goal. If you're a steward, you're doing a good job. The way you can walk the fine line is this in your content. You very clearly make a correlation between whatever that topic is and the product or a trial. Sometimes it already is because you're writing content about the product itself. But if you're starting at the first part of the journey, which is, I heard about this thing. It sounds cool. I want to know more. As long as you're transparent and you make a direct connection to the post, and it doesn't look like you just put it in there for fun, then that's fine. Like that's totally acceptable. So. I can't give the whole formula in in this amount of time for for creating this type of content. Um, I will say that unless it's thought leadership, marketers probably shouldn't be writing this content. They should be facilitating the creation of the content. It should be written by technical audiences. And it's not just because of the topic matter, it's how techies communicate. I don't know what it is, but a techie can spot a techie very easily like (laughs) they know they know if you know your stuff or don't know your stuff so um, it's important to have proper representation they want to see their peers show up in the content, whether they're internal in the company or external company they want to see their peers.
0: Yeah, that's something you kind of hear a lot about that um they trust the opinions of the peers, you know, people you know who speak their own language and you know know the things they do. And and it's it makes sense if you are buying a product that you would be hearing from another developer, you trust that a little bit more their opinion than someone who's trying to you know sell you something. Um
1: yeah, and I've I've done this thought exercise. Like it's probably true in every industry, right? Like I can't write a blog post about a new um type of procedure for a cardiologist mm. like i could probably spend enough time to understand the procedure and write a blog post that cardiologist and going to trust me whoever is reading <laughs>
0: yeah they don't I know
1: <laughs> any specialized industry the domain experts need to be the ones creating the content
0: yeah no that yeah that that makes a lot of sense and um and how would you um well what do you usually do i suppose you know uh, overall speaking um when you're reaching out to developers you know from a devrel perspective um is there anything that you keep in mind um you know is it maybe the language that you use or what is it the most important thing i suppose is what i'm trying to ask that um people engaging with developers should keep in mind?
1: That's a good, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think something that's a bit also counterintuitive, like you have to come off as human. So, you know, me personally, um, brands on Twitter, I will not follow unless I'm working for the company or like specifically interested in a product. I'm not going to follow a brand. Um, but if you do have a brand handle on your Twitter, your tweets should be, feel like a human, not like a company. Um, the The human element has to come across. And the thing that I think that is most scary for folks in the tech field is that techies can be critical. They can be very curmudgeon That can be scary. You just have to accept it because you can write the best technically accurate blog post on earth. If it gets a lot of traffic and it goes viral, somebody will complain about it. Yeah. Period like it's almost a measure of success if somebody complains about it, because you know that it got enough traffic that somebody complained about it. So you can't worry about that. You just need to make sure that the personality and the character of the company comes through because techies like to engage with people, not companies. And I think that's true for everybody, but you know, it's it's important because those kind of cold messages you put out there will land with a thud or an eye roll, or you know, it's not going to get the reaction you want. Best case scenario, you just wasted your time.
0: Yeah. No, that's true. I, I don't think anyone wants to just hear some generic keywords or buzzwords um that have no substance behind them. So and that's doubly so for developers, I suppose. Yeah. Um so okay, so we should avoid uh this, you know, let's try this strategy and it's just apply to everyone. But um how can a marketer in this case know what the developer audience wants? How can they go about well finding that out? Would it be understanding the journey they're on as you were speaking about before? Would that be the most important thing?
1: Mm-hmm um so there are a few elements of marketing that hold very true here one again we use the term developer but your developers going to be different in some respect than this global developer idea so if you're a marketer and you say how do i find developers and start looking at broad developer events it's not going to serve you well focus on the developer that is using your product today, the ones that are being successful. There is a risk here that you over-optimize for today's audience, sacrificing future's audience, but you need to know that. So you should be persona-focused. A persona or a journey, what I call in perspective, is more than just what is their title and what do they do. It is what are their motivators, Um, what are they building, why are they building it? What are they trying? How are they trying to advance their career? Where do they fit kind of in the developer world? How engaged are they in your community, et cetera? Best way to do that is to look at your current developer audience. Um, If you don't have that luxury, you know, that's, that's, that can be challenging. But if you do, if you already have a developer audience, even if it's 10 people Hmm. understanding why they are committed. Because generally developers become very committed to the tools that they use. Like once they're in, they're in. And so you probably have that audience, figure out where they came from, what they're doing, how they got there, what they liked, what they didn't like, what are they passionate about? And you'll be very surprised that the answer is that none of it is gonna relate to an email or an ad that they received. I have an asterisk here, and that asterisk is open source communities. Open source communities that have a commercial aspect, either a SaaS hosted offering or a um, commercial version, and it's actually open core, your approach has to be radically different. Everything I said in in this talk is true. Times (laughs) 10, because if you're thinking, if you're in the back of your mind is, if we just convert 2% of the open source community, we are going to be rich, then you're doing it wrong. And that is a dangerous place to be because open source communities need to be respected. The boundaries are very clear and dry. And actually you have two DevRel strategies. You have one DevRel strategy for the open source community and you have a DevRel strategy for the commercial commercial product.
0: Oh, no, that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. Um, then how would you, how would you then say that would be the best way to approach the open source commercial? Um, because again, that was a bit different from what we were talking about, right? So if someone would want to approach uh, instead, how would how could, what could he do? um At least at the start, you know, sort of like a tip.
1: And on the open source side, I'd say your priority is is scale. Like the if you have an open source community today, which most organizations are going to already be starting with the community because they usually use that community to raise money. So if you have an open source community today, you already have the seed. Don't don't ruin that. Don't try to create a new one. Let it be. Your job is scale. So it's a community effort, which means you wanna help create more connections, peer-to-peer connections. You want to help make the work more visible. That's your job. So you're making more visible what the community is doing. You're trying to get the community to be, be more connected. So you push that envelope out to be bigger and bigger and bigger. But you're, you don't interfere. You do not interfere with the conversations. You do not interfere with the content and you do not put anything in front of them that looks like you're trying to sell a commercial product. A lot of times the active open source user is not a commercial customer anyway. Hmm. And so it's not the best use of your effort to go that path. Um so I think you draw a very clear line. How do you get them to make the jump over the fence so that you can have the commercial conversation? They need to elect to do that on their okay. own. Okay. And again, scale and connections. If you expand the awareness and the reach and the breadth of the open source community. Not only are you going to help the deals that are happening that were initiated on the commercial side, you eventually will have somebody in the community realize when they've hit a wall, when it's become too complicated, when they need more, when they need more scale, when they need better performance, whatever your value prop is over the open source they will realize it for themselves so um i know there's a bit of confidence and trust that has to come with it but i i've seen i've seen organizations do this very well i've seen vast majority of organizations do this very poorly
0: mm. yes so it you know being empathetic being authentic kind of listening to developers and talking to developers and maintaining that relationship without an ulterior ulterior motive just um as you were saying before just being a human and acting like a human
1: then yeah 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 cuz you don't want the limitations in the open source to seem intentional hmm. but you do want to make them aware of it like you want them to know that there there are limitations and there's other solutions. Um yeah, it's it's tricky, but that's why I love it so much. Like this is <laughs> not an easy um and there is there is a lot of psychological challenges that come with this, which like there is a direct correlation to from there to neurodiversity. But yeah, it's it's fun, but it's hard.
0: Yeah. But that's you know that's part of the challenges if you enjoy challenges then I suppose that's um it's just something fun to to do every day. Then yeah. 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 Absolutely. No, well, that's good. Uh, so just to finalize, is there any advice you'd like to give um, you know, people listening in uh, that either they're in DevRel or you know they're thinking about going into DevRel? And is there anything you'd like to tell them um to focus on to do anything?
1: Yes. Um, I'll I'll do both. So DevRel folks, um, get better at communicating with the business. In controlling your own destiny because the business doesn't understand DevRel as much as you understand DevRel, So you need to get better at that. Also understand that DevRel is a strategy. It's not a role, has a lot of different components to it. And there is a whole history associated with how this DevRel thing came to be. And it's worth understanding that. I think a lot of people get wrapped up in being loud and tweeting and Instagram and so forth and neglect strategy. So that matters. Marketers, um, whether DevRel is a part of your org or not, like leverage them as a resource, um, and understand like they're not going to understand you know all the mechanics of marketing, but they can benefit from it. And you're not going to understand all the de- technical details, and you shouldn't pretend that you do. Um, try to get a deep technical understanding of of your your product in the developer persona. And then I'll just repeat the advice that I said before, don't try to out-tech the techie. Um, it usually doesn't, again, we're at best case scenario, they just don't listen, but they will continue not to listen into the future as well. So it's important not to go down that rabbit hole. Thank you for having me. These are these are my favorite conversations.
0: Oh, no. Thank you for, um, you know, talking to me. And I, I really love talking about this as well and kind of, you know, learning more and hopefully our listeners can, you know, get all the great insights as yeah, well. Yeah. And I think,
1: and, yeah, it's stuff like this, like I was going to say, like having the conversation and I, I open myself up for these conversations, like mm-hmm. it, this, as much as a job as it is a hobby, for me because it is so new and it is so challenging. so I love having the conversations and I mentor a lot of folks trying to get into Devrel so if if folks want to have the conversation I'm open to it.
0: No that's amazing thank you and thank you as well I want to say um for your talk about neuro, neurodiversity because I know um that can be so, so difficult to talk about but I, I do appreciate that as well so yeah yeah Absolutely. and yeah thank you again thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of DevMire Debugged. If you want to hear more from professionals in the developer marketing world, subscribe to our podcast for more expert talks. See you on the next one.